Hey everyone, Kevin here from Skywatcher and welcome to the Skywatcher What's Up webcast. My name is Kevin Lagore. I'm the product specialist here for Skywatcher in North America. And this is our What's Up webcast. We do this every Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here on the Skywatcher USA YouTube channel. Uh, these are live at the time of recording, um, but they are saved on our YouTube channel if you ever want to go back and watch them. Uh, we cover everything pretty much what we feel like doing from what's up into the nighttime sky to equipment to helpful tips and tricks on imaging and observing. And then of course, at the last Friday of each month, we have a special guest uh, with us. So this week, uh, we're really excited. We have one of our really good friends here, uh, Don Pettit. He's a NASA astronaut. He's been to the ISS three times. He's got 370 days in space, I think. Um, way more than I do. Um, and just an all-around uh, great guy. So Don is here from Houston. I'm going to go ahead and bring him in, and uh, we'll get started. Um, let me pop that up when that wants to work. Bear with me, guys. Make Don bigger. There we go. So that's better. Um, so... Fun stuff with the Zoom. That's better. Okay, um, let me bring Don in here. Perfect. So, good morning, Don. Thanks for uh, joining us today. It's a pleasure. I can talk about one of my favorite hobbies, amateur astronomy. I could talk about this kind of stuff for hours. So, you better settle in with a big cup of coffee. Yeah, I I wish we had more than an hour. I know we've been to events where we've. A whole evening or day has basically just burned through with but I know you could tell stories day in and day out so um, but definitely thanks for taking the time uh, on a Friday to sit and chat with us about this um, so I guess to get things started I like to ask everyone the same question who's on and that's how did your interest in space or astronomy start uh, it uh, my interest in astronomy and space started when I was a little kid and you just look up, up at the sky and you say, wow, isn't that cool? What are all those little points of light? How come the moon moves around? Why does, why does it look like a cookie with a bite out of it sometimes? And then what are these things called eclipses? And so, uh, so that kind of curiosity just led me into astronomy. And then I got into photography. And so combining photography with astronomy is just a natural thing to do where you get uh, different kinds of film and then you find that you're sensitizing it and you're using a single lens reflex camera with film and, and trying to record all the stuff that you're seeing with your homemade telescope. So, so I've been interested in astronomy probably since sixth or seventh grade. Yeah, I, it seems like most people have that. And of course, nowadays, you're well aware, everyone wants to take pictures of stuff. So that that transition happens naturally nowadays. And I know that's, that hasn't stopped you. Even now being an astronaut, you that those images that you tend to capture when you're in orbit continue and i know that's something that we'll probably get into here in a little bit but um what's interesting i think about you as opposed to you know everyone has their story of how they got started in astronomy and they got their first telescope and 
their hobby has continued, but yours is a little different because now you're an astronaut and you've been to space three times. And so where does the interest as a kid rocket you literally into the career that you've got now? Well, one advantage I had as a kid growing up, not only can you look at the sky and you can make a telescope and you could do stuff, hook your camera up to it and you could try to get pictures, but I grew up during the age of the Mercury astronauts and the first Apollo missions. And so I, I got to watch Neil Armstrong walk on the moon. I remember when John Glenn did his first orbital flight. And so that struck a bit in my mind about wouldn't that be cool to do that? And I just kind of filed that away for years and years and years uh, became a techno uber geek, did engineering in college. And then when I was graduating from graduate school, I realized, hey, I've got all the qualifications for being an astronaut, particularly a scientist astronaut. And there happened to be an astronaut selection going on at that time. So I put in my application. Um. I know we've talked about this, but you've told this story before, but I think it's awesome. Um, so I know you put in the application. Obviously, you ended up getting it at some point, but um, can you tell the people watching when you got the call to be an astronaut was actually kind of an interesting uh, story in general? Yeah, I'll uh, I'll get to that part. But let me first point out that I put in an application went in for an interview, and then sometime later I got the, the rejection letter. And that's a pretty big slap on your ego, but it didn't dampen my interest in trying to become an astronaut. And about every two to four years, they do an astronaut selection. So I kept putting in my applications and I kept getting reject after reject after reject until finally I got after the fourth, the fourth interview, the fourth time of rushing NASA's door, uh, that's when I got the call if I wanted to be an astronaut. And, and I was in New Zealand at the time doing volcano fumarole gas analysis. And we had been chased uh, off of the volcano because of a real nasty storm and there was like eight of us in a little tiny cottage that was about the size of a garage uh, sleeping with this huge storm pounding us and about two o'clock in the morning I got a phone call from Houston wanting to know if I was still interested in being an astronaut. Uh, I think that's awesome how you're basically in a volcano then get asked to be an astronaut on top of that. So um, I know you've got tons of stories like that. And I know it, those have progressively gotten um, more interesting the more you've been involved with uh, NASA. Um, I know, um, so we've talked about this before on other events. Um, for kids or, because I know there's some educators that are watching today or will be watching this recorded, but for students or kids that are out there today, they're obviously seeing what's happening with 
you know, SpaceX and Blue Origin and you have all these, and NASA, of course, um, it's still a thing. So and it's growing. And of course, this past year, it's been um, crazy with the interest in astronomy spiking because everyone's stuck at home. But for kids who want to get into being an astronaut, obviously NASA just had their pick of a new selection of astronauts. But for those who want to become an astronaut, what are your words of advice for them? Well, uh, being an astronaut in our current age requires technical skill and knowledge. And you have to know how the spacecraft works. You have to know how to operate. You have to know how to fix it. And and the reason being is space is a place where human beings weren't innately meant to go. And the only way we can go there and survive and come back and still be alive is to take a machine with us that provides us all the stuff we need in order to stay alive. And when you go into an environment like that, you need to know how your machine works. You need to know how to fix your machine because they always seem to be breaking. Uh, And that takes math and science and engineering uh, kind of skills to to uh, know how to take care of yourself when you go into a space environment. So if that's what you want to do, then you need to take all the fun classes in in school. You need to do the math. You need to do the science. You need to do the engineering. And you can branch out into all kinds of other fields. You can do biology. You can do geology. You can do uh, any of the fields but you have to have a good fundamental understanding of the technology that you are going to be relying on to keep you alive. So, so that is the technical background you need. And then you need the interest in going into space because it's not easy. It's not like camping out in a Hilton hotel. I mean, it's like camping out in a wilderness. You're, you may not have have the kind of food you want. Uh, you may be limited in all kinds of other supplies. It's and 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 things can go bad in a short order when you're in the wilderness of space. So so you you have to be prepared, uh, just like you do when you're camping in the wilderness. And and that isn't for everybody. Yeah, and I I know it's it's really tough when you're in something that hospitable. Um, now, and I know that's even advancing further because obviously you've been to space station several times, but now we're talking about going to you know, new worlds at that point where the moon is now aggressively and quickly becoming the next target in the very foreseeable future. And then, of course, Mars, and we just had Perseverance land, so I don't know if that's affected the, the thought process in the astronaut program even further. We, we watch what those folks at JPL do with, with envy because they seem, uh, they're like, well, all engineers at NASA, they're like gymnasts in the Olympics. They go through their routine, you know, it's really, really difficult, but they could go through a routine with a smile on their face and, and, and it looks so easy, but you fundamentally know that what they just did 
was really, really difficult and took a lot of skill. And, and the, the folks at JPL and other facilities at NASA uh, have this ability where they take something that's really, really complex, really, really difficult to do, and they make it look like it's so easy. Uh, we're, we've got a couple friends over at JPL that worked on the Mars mission Perseverance that just landed, and you know, they were asking what we thought about it, and it's like, it, of course, it was phenomenal to just watch it look like it went off without a hitch, but you know that I'm sure you've been there even during a launch where you're just going down this massive checklist hoping every single one of those little things goes off without a hitch, so. Yeah. Um, so... That's, it's always cool to see where things are going. And of course now, you know, the, the new mission for the moon is getting pretty close to becoming a thing. Um, what's your take on this next uh, series or chapter that NASA's entering? I, I know being an astronaut, they're picking who's gonna go on certain missions. So I didn't know what your thought is um, for those watching. Would you go to the moon? Would you? Go to the I think you're slated to do another mission, but you know, what are your thoughts on where you would prefer to go? Okay, let me first comment about the Artemis program. And the Artemis program is the program to go beyond low Earth orbit. And this includes making an orbital complex, uh, think of it as a miniature space station, a mini space station, uh, comprised of maybe two or three modules that's in a high altitude orbit. We call it a halo orbit around the moon. And, and that's a good staging location. And then we have the Orion spacecraft that'll go to this orbital complex. And from there, we can get on a dedicated lunar landing vehicle and land on the moon. And we're gonna start off with six day missions to the moon and then expand that uh, while we, after we build up assets at one location so that we can actually have a lunar base with a sustained effort and, and a crew uh, size of, of uh, at least four crew members and rover vehicles and significant uh, scientific and engineering capability. Yeah, it's... it's it's phenomenal that in the next several years that we're going to be seeing hopefully the return to the moon at that point. Yeah, yeah. And, and let me point out, the moon, the, you know, Mars is an amazing place. We all want to get to Mars. But if you look at how difficult these things are, when you have a human being or multiple human beings on the spacecraft with all the life support and all the things needed to keep us alive and happy, going to the moon is the next logical step. It's, it's just a few days away from Earth. If things go bad, you've got multiple abort options. Even with our most advanced space technology that we really don't have operating yet on the scale necessary for human beings, which is some of these electric propulsion, uh, uh, high specific impulse electric uh, thruster schemes, uh, we could, possibly get to Mars in six to nine months one way. Uh, 
if we use the standard burn and coast kind of techniques, it's still basically a year to get there and a year to come home and a year to two years on the surface because you got to wait for things to get lined up and and you just can't come home anytime you want. So, so the time element with Mars is what makes these missions so difficult when you have a human being involved and the abort options are so few and far between where on the moon you can go there multiple times a month it's a few days there a few days back and it's a good way to get your technology working the bugs worked out of it so that uh, when you go off for multiple years at a time, you you have a, a high re a reliability on your equipment. Yeah, it's almost like where we currently are with the ISS. It's like that's the, in a way, that's the beach of the ocean. And then it, the moon it, would be the dock to go out to the deep waters. Yeah, or, or I like to look at it, going to the moon is like sailing in the Mediterranean. And going to Mars is like sailing across the Atlantic. Yeah. <laughs> a nice, nice weekend getaway versus a month-long excursion. So. Yeah. Um, so now that, obviously, the, the Artemis missions and the, the Moon missions are becoming picking crew for them, um, if you had your choice of going to the Moon or going to the ISS, what would, what would you personally like? Oh, gosh, uh, I'll do any mission that my management wants me to do. Uh, I really like being in space for a long period of time. I seem to come alive on orbit, and the, the longer I could stay there, the, the better adapted, the more efficient, and it's such a cool environment. Uh, you almost hate to come back to Earth. The lunar missions, at least the initial ones, are going to be shorter missions. And the first few missions are going to be really centered on nailing down the technology, which means the approach and landing phase of flight, because that's really, really critical. And, and it makes sense for the first few crews going to the moon that they have to be the best fighter pilot test pilot kind of people that you can find uh, in the astronaut corps. And, and then, you know, later on, you can start to send the scientist types like, like myself. But uh, initially, uh, you, you need to stack the deck towards the people that, that live and breathe flying a highly dynamic machine. And then later, you can send the people that live and breathe thinking about uh, doing science uh, in the environment that you happen to be in. So at that point, you'd, you know, you'd, you'd prefer to spend more time in space than a short jog to the yeah, moon. Yeah. If and, you had your choice. Like I, yeah. Like I say, I'll take any mission the management wants me to fly, any mission that the management thinks I've got the right skill set to do. Um, currently, and, and going back to station would be great. Doing a moon mission would be great. Um, Just being in I, space I'm, would I'm be awesome. I'm happy to do all of the above. As long Send as you're in space. If we had the capability, but we don't. As long as you're in space, you're happy. Yeah. You need your space. <laughs> so. Um, so real quick question on that. Um, 
when you go back to obviously this would depend on the mission there but would you want to would you want to hitch a ride on one of the falcon uh capsules oh uh, i'm a mercenary i'll ride on anybody that has a rocket and and if you look at the ch choices we have now we could we could fly on the russian soyuz and i've flown twice on the russian soyuz vehicle uh one round trip and one uh deorbit coming back to earth and and if you look at the american vehicles uh we we currently have the the spacex dragon as a commercial vehicle the boeing uh uh, Starliner is going to be coming uh, online here soon. And then we've got uh, several other commercial companies with spacecraft, either suborbital or orbit spacecraft that they're working on, and, and they will be coming online in the years to come. And then, and then uh, uh, we'll have the the NASA Orion spacecraft, which is specifically designed for going away from planet Earth. Got quite a selection in the fleet coming yeah, online. And, 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 and I'm, I'm happy to fly on any and all of the above. Yeah. It's a 737 or a 777, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, so having said that, having been to the space station um, and just being in space in general, um, I think you get this probably a lot, but what's it like to experience that? Because, I mean, you, you go from training to the rocket launch to orbit to, oh, my God, I'm on the space station and there's Earth kind of a thing. Yeah, uh, there's several cool aspects about being in space. One is your weightless. And that is a totally foreign experience to a creature that walks on two legs on the surface of planet Earth. And it is an incredibly delightful situation to find yourself in. And it takes a while to adapt. It takes a while to learn how to expertly float around. And everybody I've seen that goes into space within a week or so uh, adapt really well. And as you spend more time in space, you develop more finesse in terms of how you move and, and your ability to juggle multiple small objects at a time. And, and you just figure out how to do it without losing stuff uh, floating off in all directions. So that's one aspect and, it, and it's incredibly delightful. And then there's what you can see when you look out the window. And from the orbital heights, which is about 240 miles, 400 kilometers, from that height, you can see Earth on the length scale of half a continent. And, and you can be over center of Australia, and you can see both the East Coast and the West Coast at the same time. It's, it's phenomenal. If you're over the United States, you cannot see the East Coast and the West Coast at the same time. Uh, but you can see the West Coast and you can see maybe uh, uh, just pa pa past Kansas. Uh, and, and so you get to see Earth on a length scale that you are not used 
to observing Earth. And this length scale allows you to see detail that you can't observe when you are closer to the subject. So, so you can see you can see detail in terms of mountain ranges and structure and basin and range. Uh, a, uh, uh, a geology that you see in the western part of the United States. You can see rift zones. You can uh, there, there's so much structure that you can see on this length scale that you can't see if you're in an airplane or your feet are on the ground. And then the colors, the the colors of uh, particularly the blues of the the oceans are just amazing. And then you turn your head upwards, and that's a uh, uh, an Earth-centric view because there's really no up and down. But if you look upwards and look at the stars during an orbital night period, they are amazingly bright uh, simply because you're out of the atmosphere and the atmosphere spoils a lot of the contrast between objects, particularly objects like uh, Andromeda, M31. You can just pick up M31 with your eye you, uh, without any issue at all, where, where you have to be fairly dark adapted and look in the right spot and, and, and kind of uh, look at it out of the corner of your eye in order to see Andromeda down here. But in space, you just look at it and it's like, oh, there's Andromeda. And then the large and small Magellanic clouds are just amazing. You can see colors in the Milky Way that just don't make it through our atmosphere. And then you can see both northern and southern hemisphere constellations at the same time. So, so that's an amazing aspect in terms of what you could see from an amateur astronomy point I of view. I just wanted to bring up this picture real quick. Uh, it's probably my favorite of you. I'm not sure which one of your colleagues shot it, but this is you in probably your favorite spot, looking at the stars yeah. and the cupola um, out there. Yeah, uh, actually, uh, uh, Kevin, that's a self-portrait. And I was, uh, I set the camera up on basically the equivalent of a zero gravity tripod. Uh, a little arm structure in the Russian segment in this one window that views the oh, U.S. Okay. segment. And then I probably had close to 60 meters of passages to translate through in order to poke my head up into the cupola. And then I had a little, uh, a little weak flashlight that I shined on my face so that you could, could, could see my face inside of the cupola. And and I probably did. I probably had had uh, to take dozens and dozens of pictures until I got one that was the way I wanted. But anyway, that's a, a self portrait I did early one Sunday morning when everybody else was asleep. And that actually brings me to a a topic. Um, my next question for you is: obviously, when you're on station, um, you guys have a list of things that you need to be doing during the day. Um, you have work to do, but you do have time off at times. Um, what do you ultimately enjoy doing with your free time on station? Okay. Um, let me first talk a little bit about the work environment because the crew goes into space to do work and it's either research, engineering research or scientific research or maintenance on the space station itself. And, and, and you're kept really, really busy. Your day starts at 7 a.m. 
and you are scheduled with activities throughout the day until 7 p.m. So, so, so you're expected to work a 12-hour day, and you can never get everything done that they want you to do in the time period that they give you. It's just go figure. It always takes longer to get things done. And so we typically work 13 to 14 hours a day, and we'll do that five and a half to six days a week. And so anytime when you're off duty, and I like to use the term off duty because it isn't like you have spare time because there's no spare time. It isn't like you have free time because there's, there's no free time because you're on this highly dynamic platform that you need like a sleeping mother cat. You need to keep one eye open to watch the kittens. And, and so you're, you're always on edge however you do have off-duty time where where you're off duty now until 7 a.m and uh, you know what do you do and and so what i would do is uh imagery i would do any number of just uh uh standard photography of earth to internal photography to amateur uh, amateur astronomy and and that that became one of my favorite uh, favorite things to do during the off-duty time and then I had a number of educational demonstrations that I enjoyed working on just to show students how unique of an environment this is and and how things don't necessarily work the same way they do on planet earth uh, it's it's I don't know. I could go on for hours talking to you about your experience. I know you could too, because it's so special. But um, I know one thing that you're you're kind of well known for um, is making your basically the space coffee cup. Um, oh yeah, yeah. And uh, I happen to have one here because I knew you were going to talk about it, and here it is. And it's got. Uh, I, uh, it's got the NASA logo on it. And then what I really think is cool is uh, see uh, see that uh, that's that's a logo that I put inside, and it's uh, it's a zero G. <laughs> that's awesome. So it's a big zero with a little G inside. Instead of a big G and a little O, it's uh, a big O with a little G. And then the shape of this is defined from the mathematics of fluid physics applied in a weightless environment to make an open a container because a standard open container like this guy just does not work in a weightless environment. Our standard open containers are really gravity machines and they depend on gravity to operate and they just won't work. But this shape coupled with the fluid physics in microgravity allows you to drink and sip from an open container. And this allows us to imbibe our coffee and our tea in a manner that's commensurate with how we uh, uh, sip these beverages on earth from an open container. Because uh, before these coffee cups, 
uh, we had to drink all our coffee from a, a basically a juice bag through a straw and you can't smell the coffee maybe 60 percent of the effect of sipping coffee comes from the smell and when you sip it through a straw it's more like flavored hot water so so these uh, this is really a uh, a cool uh application of surface tension and math in a weightless environment to give back to the crew members a little detail that you're taking from home so that you can continue on any number of rituals with your crew members after a hard day's work or just simply want to enjoy a cup of coffee. Uh, that's, that's another just cool thing about what you guys have done up there. So I appreciate you sharing that with uh, everybody. Um, I, I, uh, before you, I have one more detail that I want to go on. So we actually have two different patents on the zero G coffee cup. And as you can imagine, there's not a lot of demand for that, you know, so you make six of them, you know, but it turns out the fluid physics and the design strategy behind the zero G coffee cup is now being used by NASA for a contingency urine collector. So imagine something that kind of looks like your coffee cup, but it's a, it has a long plastic bag attached to it. And if the toilet breaks, you can use this bag assembly to collect urine in a way that it won't splash out and make a mess and all of that. And the fluid physics keeps the urine well contained in the bag, and then you can seal it all up. So, so I'm happy to report that perhaps one of the first practical applications of my space cup is for a urine container. You know, when you're in space, you got to think about, you know, you don't just roll down the window. I mean, that's, yeah. you got to figure and it so, out. Yeah, and this is an example of the great circle of a technological invention. And so you start off with coffee, you drink your coffee using the coffee cup technology, and then when it's time to use the toilet that's broken, you could use your coffee cup technology to get rid of your coffee for recycle. So, it, <laughs> so it's all part of the great circle of life in a space environment while you're going in circles. There, there you go. It's all, it's all linked. Um, yeah, it, it's all linked. Um, you were, I was, so for those of you who want to see some cool pictures, you've got some cool stuff on your official Facebook page that NASA has you do. You were up in orbit during the Venus transit, wasn't that correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm still working on some of the, the images on that. Uh, as part of my personal kit, and NASA allows you to fly a small bag of personal stuff. And as long as it passes a safety review, uh, they have no issue with what you pack in there. And and being an amateur astronomer and knowing that there were no uh, solar filters on station, I packaged, I packed one of the, the Mylar solar filters and I had it sized so it would fit on our telephoto lenses. 
that we have on station. Yeah, there it is. Oh, good. And, and so that's the solar filter put on the front of a 1200 millimeter telephoto lens. And this is an F56 lens. So that's a big hunk of glass, a big hunk of glass. And with that lens, the circular disc of either the moon or the sun basically fills the vertical height on a 35 millimeter or FX size sensor. So it's, it's perfect for, for solar imagery. And, and yes, that's one of my images of the transit of Venus. And there happened to be a few uh, sunspots at the same time. So that was kind of neat. And, and I got, I think, two out of the four contacts uh, imaged. Uh, there was some structural blockage from our solar panels, and and two out of the four contacts uh, were happened when the sun was behind a solar panel. Uh, but I, I did get two of the contacts, and what I'm working on now with the images, and I took hundreds of images during the course of the transit. If you if you think of of space station orbiting Earth when it's on one extreme edge of the orbit to the other extreme edge of the orbit, you have the parallax basically of the diameter of Earth for your observation. And if you plot all these images that I took of the transit of Venus, it makes the transit, instead of going uh, across as a smooth line like it would on Earth, it's a sine wave. It wiggles. And the amplitude of that sine wave is an indication of the parallax because of the extreme ends of your orbit. So uh, what I need to do is sit down with that measurement and use that to uh, calculate the the magnitude, the length of the astronomical unit to see how that compares with the data that was gathered from Captain Cook's uh, 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 transit of Venus expeditions uh, uh, back in, I think that was 1770-something, uh, when, when, they, when they did that specifically to uh, get parallax measurements uh, for determining the length of the astronomical unit. So it's, it would be a space age twist to an old calculation, and it would be interesting to see what kind of number I could get just from a casual amateur astronomy observation on space station. And that's TBD work on my part. That's awesome. I, I know there's a bunch of questions I could ask you, but I know we're running into constraints for that we can do a QA. Um, real quick, um, this kind of relates to one of the questions as well. Um, what are your plans for future missions? Oh, well, I want to continue doing solar observations on space station, exoatmospheric. And I'm, I'm working with a colleague on making a, a hydrogen alpha type solar filter, but not at the hydrogen alpha wavelength, but tweaked at an oxygen absorption line, which does not get through our atmosphere. It's right around 762 nanometers. And so, or 763 uh, uh, nanometers. And so, so this wavelength in that very narrow slice 
does not get through our atmosphere because of the oxygen oxygen absorption. And so I want to observe the sun at that wavelength just to see what we might see. And and if if you look at the sun with a just a neutral density filter from orbit, you're not you're not going to see the detail that you can from an extremely narrow band filter that's uh, a half an angstrom bandwidth. And and looking at the sun with a standard hydrogen alpha filter from orbit probably isn't going to buy you any more than what you could do from the surface of Earth because that wavelength transmits through our atmosphere without uh, a lot of issues. Uh, but this this wavelength at the oxygen absorption band, um, I'm, I'm thinking uh, it might be interesting to look at the image of the solar disk at that wavelength just to see uh, what, what, my, what detail might pop out. So that's that's one of the projects I'm working on right now. Oh, that'll be I'll be really curious to see what you can get when you when you're up there again. And yeah, how that yeah. Who out. knows? And and this is this is why we go into a frontier. You go into a frontier. The answers are not in the back of the book, and you may have to figure something out for yourself and the normal way of, of walking and talking in terms of life uh, back home may not apply when you go into a frontier and you oftentimes don't even know what to expect and so uh, maybe uh, you know you could you could say wow uh, what's going to happen at this oxygen wavelength that has trouble getting through our earth's atmosphere well maybe there won't be anything special you know it might just look uh, that uh, and I, sort of like a hydrogen alpha uh, filtered sun. Who knows what it's going to look like, but maybe it's going to look really cool. Uh, who knows? There, there could be something of, of scientific interest that comes from it because you would be looking at the sun under oxygen wavelength emissions. That's, that's why you, that's science. You yeah. Try. You got to ask the question, so... Yeah, and you can't be disappointed if you make a measurement like that and go, ho-hum, okay, that was interesting, but I don't see anything useful in it. And and then then you just move on to the next thing. So you, you never can let your disappointment dampen your interest in doing these investigations. Uh, I know we're going to – this is my last question, then we'll flip it over. Um, I know example of that, you had talked about when we were hanging out um, like a Texas star party or something, you were messing around with a water bottle that had like salt or sugar or some particle in it and you were messing around with it and the particles were clumping together and you screwing around in orbit with this water bottle actually ended up proving something about uh, planetary formation. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. And it was a big plastic bag and I was growing... Uh, sodium chloride crystals from the salt solution that we put on our food because uh, you can imagine a salt shaker doesn't work in a weightless environment so they have a saturated solution a sodium chloride and a squeeze bottle and you can squeeze that on your food if you want to add salt to it it's a real smart engineering way to deal with uh, how do you put salt on your food if you so desire more salt and nobody was using the salt and so a bunch of these little bottles had accumulated and so i started to grow sodium chloride crystals from this salt solution by letting it evaporate 
and and actually have three scientific papers published on that, uh, two in the Journal of Crystal Growth and one in the Nature Journal of Microgravity Research on sodium chloride crystallization. But what do you do with these crystals when you're done with them? Well, I just kept them in a plastic bag, something like a, a gallon Ziploc baggie. And shaking these crystals around, I noticed that they would clump together on their own. So these were millimeter-sized crystals clumping together rather quickly. And, and I, I shot a lot of a video on this. I did a number of different uh, solid systems that we had, like powdered milk and coffee and, and other things. And, and uh, with the help of a colleague, another astronaut, uh, Stan Love, who is a planetary scientist, uh, or he was one before he got selected, and he still is one. And he recognized that this clumping had a value in terms of planetary formation. So with Stan and some other co-authors, uh, we wrote, I think, three different papers on particle agglomeration in uh, an orbital environment with its application to planetary formation. And since then, there have been at least two other uh, formal experiments flown on space station looking at larger particles and how they behave when they're in close proximity to each other and, and their ability to agglomerate. So, so that's a fun story uh, uh, in terms of just goofing around doing something else and then making a clandestine observation and then having it fill a uh, needed uh, hole in the knowledge of how planets uh, can uh, form from cosmic dust. And, and, and anyway, that's, that's why you go to a frontier. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I know we have a couple questions. I'll try to get through them. I know we have a little bit of time before I got to let you get back to, you know, important NASA stuff. Um, first question is, how is NASA handling COVID, especially for crew members soon to be going to station? Okay. Um, we, uh, we follow all the standard rules for, for COVID, and, and uh, I keep in my pocket here. I keep, I keep my little, my little mask and, and we have left over from my missions are these little temporary tattoos that you give out to all the kids. And I had a whole stack of these tattoos. And so I thought, what should I do with the tattoos? And so I put the tattoos on my mask. And, and so that way I've got my mission patch, uh, uh, temporary tattoo on my mask. Uh, we wear masks whenever we are outside of our homes. And, and I probably do training uh, with, with uh, uh, T-38 flying and simulator flying and, and the NBL runs where we get in the, the great white EVA suit and we go underwater and we, we practice EVA. I probably do that equivalent two days a week. And the other three days, I uh, like everyone else. I sit in front of my computer and uh, and uh, yawn while I'm doing uh, PowerPoint training and 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 other things. Nice. I I know we're all just trying to get through it. Yeah, and, and it uh, it does slow down 
your work effort. And I also find that if you're working with a group of engineers, maybe there's 10 people, you're all teamed into a meeting and it, uh, the the social dynamics is a little bit awkward in terms of stepping on each other and talking and I work so much better face to face but it's better than not doing anything at all and, and so you know we're just adapting and doing the best job we can it's a little bit slower than normal maybe we don't get as many ideas thrown out in the same amount of time but but we are making advancements both on the artemis program and in the astronaut training and then we go in uh, equivalent about two days a week for doing all sorts of other uh, activities i've been looking at some of the the displays for the Orion spacecraft for for ascent and for rendezvous and docking uh, 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 early earlier this week I went in for a, a rendezvous and docking uh, evaluation with the Orion spacecraft going into the gateway orbital complex and so it's like wow this is actually turning into something real and we've got real hardware actually sitting at the Cape uh, ready to launch or getting ready to launch and and it, it's like wow this we this is a, a a real hopping place awesome um this is a good one for the students uh what kind of student were you i know like in high school and elementary you get some people where they're they might have a hard time with math or science or whatever but they've still grown into someone different um how were you in school Oh, um, there was a time in grade school, and I didn't know this until after I was adult. My parents were wondering whether I could even learn to read. And I was probably reading at a, you know, at least one, maybe two grade levels below all my other classmates. And then my brain really didn't kick on until until probably uh until probably sixth or seventh grade and and that that's when all of a sudden it's like the cobwebs get out of your brain and you you figure stuff out and and then and then after that uh you, you never look back you you just you keep reading uh you watch ants walking on the ground uh, you look at the bumblebees you do your gardening you do your photography you do your amateur astronomy i mean you, you just explode uh, uh after that but but as, as a school kid i you know school was tough on me at the at the grade school level and now there'd probably be some kind of a syndrome that they would have diagnosed me with but uh, at the time I grew up uh, nobody uh, uh, thought about that kind of stuff uh, and then once I hit high school it was like the sky's not the limit it's it's like you I I just I just became a techno uber geek and then the same thing in in college and the more technical the classes the more the more i liked them uh, i think that's important for kids out there to realize you know it's because you're not adapting where it is now doesn't that doesn't mean that's the person you're going to be um in the future so i appreciate yeah, you and, and you, you the, the important thing is don't give up you know, uh, whatever interests you have, keep doing those interests. Don't give up, and and uh, and 
you will find some level where you will be happy being. Yeah. No, that's that's great. Um, I really appreciate you. As someone who does outreach, I really appreciate that question. Um, let me look through some of these. Uh, what was the hardest part of your training? Or oh. is part of your training? Because it hasn't stopped. Yeah, the hardest part of my training by far is a Russian language. And I've been taking one to two Russian language classes, typically an hour and a half to two hours a class, every week since 1999. So I've, I've got a lot of Russian language class and I can, uh, I, I have trouble speaking Russian. You know, I've been, I've been doing this and I can get by, particularly in a cockpit, in a spacecraft or an airplane, because you, you tend to speak in short, simple grammatical construction. Uh, but to recite Russian poetry or to look out over the mountains and say the diaphanous clouds are draped over the mountains with the pinkish sunset and the rays coming, you know, I, I would have a hard time doing that. I could, I could talk like Tarzan, see sun, see mountains. Oh, beautiful. That's, that's how I would sound in, in Russian. And it's just, my brain is not wired for the language, but, I work hard at it, and I've been working hard at it since 1999, so I guess that's 20, 22 years of Russian language class, uh, uh, and, and I, I can get by, but uh, I've had some of my, my, uh, 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 some of my colleagues be able to far out strip my ability to speak Russian after a couple of years of classes. So anyway, that's, that's hard for me. Uh, sitting down with a, a two-inch stack of technical documents with tensor equations and all this other stuff, no problem. Uh, uh, learning the finer points of Russian grammar, uh, particularly with verbs of motion, uh, you know, I, I have trouble getting my brain wrapped around that. Oh, that's... I think a lot of people wouldn't even think of. Um, I know we're wrapping up on questions. We are getting more in there, um, but we're pretty tight on time. You know, NASA's got a tight schedule. Um, let's see. Probably the last one, because I know you answer stuff really thoroughly, which is, like, we get a lot of good comments about it. So this will be the last one um, I think we can hit. Uh, what was Don's most memorable experience in space? I was gonna work really hard just to answer this question with a yes or a no. And then you ask the question that I can't do that. Cause I, I wanted to be able to at least answer one question without talking for five minutes. Uh, gosh, uh, the most memorable moment. The most memorable moment was being on station when Columbia burned up and I lost a bunch of good friends. That's, I, yeah, I can't imagine being in that 
that actually wasn't even the answer I was expecting to hear either. So that yeah, I, I gave that because you know I could talk about wow well, we could fly like Peter Pan or I mean there's all kinds of memorable the moments generic like that. stuff. But, but that's but I, I just wanted to share that that you can have memorable moments that aren't necessarily pleasant mm -hmm. and they they are burned into your brain and you need to use them for the for the the story that they can tell. And the story that that tells is flying in space is not without risk. And it's, it, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like flying airplanes when they were made out of uh, wood and silk. And, uh, and it's, it's not a, it's, it's something that you have to think carefully about. Uh, why do I want to fly into space? Because it offers a certain level of risk and it's a real harsh environment. And because of the energies involved, the kinetic energy of orbit is immense. It's uh, the kinetic energy of orbit is about 30 megajoules per kilogram. And that's about the heat of combustion from TNT. So think about you think if you had an avatar following you around in orbit, your body weight, but made out of TNT. And if the energy of orbit gets released in any other way other than the what the engineers designed it for, it's like that avatar of TNT gives you a big hug and then detonates. So, so it, it's it's not so much the distance of orbit that separates you from Earth. It's the energy of orbit, and it's the energy that makes that ramps up the the danger of getting into orbit, both from the launch phase and then and then the coming back home phase. So, so so that's the lesson that's worth remembering when I think about what happened to my uh, colleagues in in Colombia. I. Uh... I appreciate you taking that personal memoir right there because that's I know you could have given the generic answers which you know is fun for kids and stuff and we all appreciate that too but that's it is something that when you are doing stuff like this or anything science related that does come with some inherent risk and you should always have that at the back of your mind when you're doing that so I really appreciate you um, taking that so um, I know you've got other stuff to do. I know it's it's that bewitching hour at this point. So um, I really appreciate it, as to everybody watching, uh, taking the time today and talking with us, hanging out with us. Uh, hopefully, maybe we can do it again. Um, but thank you very much for uh, your time this morning. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. And uh, for sure, let's plan to do this again. Uh, because talking about amateur astronomy combined with traveling into space are uh, two of my favorite subjects and and like i say i could talk about this stuff for hours well well i know how to get in touch with you so okay. um, we'll be talking but thank you very much have a great weekend and of course uh stay safe out there and we'll catch up okay. with you soon take care bye now all right um let me go. All right, everyone. That's it for today's episode. Thank you very much. A uh, big shout out to Don for taking the time, uh, for taking his time this morning from Houston. And uh, 
we'll, sounds like we'll definitely have him back on. We'll definitely let you guys know if that's a thing. Um, please have a great weekend. Go out and observe the night sky. It's a big bright moon. Go look at the moon. See where we're going next. Uh, so have a great weekend. Stay safe. And we will catch you guys next week for another What's Up webcast. Take care, everybody. See ya.